we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. They feared no one, eluded everyone, and killed in the shadows. The Order of Assassins was born out of political turmoil, and its members were out for revolution. If you enjoyed today's episodes, head over to Secret Societies to hear more like it. New episodes release every Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. On October 14, 1092, the court of the Seljuk Sultan was traveling to the palace in Baghdad on the road from Isfahan. The Sultan's chief minister, Nizam al-Muk, lounged in a pillowed litter carried by his guards. The road was dangerous, but any road in a time of war would be. The Seljuk Empire was in the midst of a heated conflict with a group of religious fanatics. It was up to Nizam al-Muk to take the insurrection down. As they approached Baghdad, Nizam's caravan came to a halt. A poor Sufi Muslim man was waiting for them, he wanted a word with Nizam. The guards placed the litter on the ground so they could speak. But it was a trick. The Sufi man unsheathed a hidden dagger and stabbed Nizam in the throat. Blood sprayed everywhere. As Nizam fell to the ground, he stared into the eyes of his killer, who was smiling, his dagger drenched in blood. The man was no Sufi. He was one of the enemy radicals a disciple of Hassani Sabah, a member of the Order of Assassins. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. 
Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes on the Order of Assassins, an organization of extremist Shiite Muslims who feared nothing, not even death. They tormented Sunni Muslims and Christians during the Crusades in the Middle East. Instead of fighting in open combat, the assassins killed in the shadows. This week, we'll explore the origins of the order and the man who founded it, Hassan i Sabah. He took advantage of political turmoil to amass a following of elite killers and create a new state. We'll also examine some of the most infamous secrets and the legends of what really went on inside their headquarters, the walled fortress, Alamut Castle. Next week, we'll follow the order as new leadership radicalizes them. They narrowly survived an unending war against their Sunni Muslim enemies, even as Christian crusaders invaded the area. But then, the growing Mongol Empire helped put an end to one of the deadliest secret societies the world has ever seen. Few medieval organizations have had as storied a history as the Order of Assassins. You may have encountered their likeness in the popular 2000s video game series, Assassin's Creed. But you may not know that before the Order, the word assassination didn't exist. They're one of the most elusive organizations in history. Limited records led to the creation of legends, and before long, the lines separating fact and fiction blurred. Tales of secret gardens, hidden daggers, and assassins jumping off buildings just to prove their fearlessness have shocked us for more than a thousand years. Even their name is shrouded in mystery. Assassin is the westernized version of the Arabic word hashashin. It comes from hashish, a type of cannabis popular in Persia and India. There are two leading theories on the origin of the name hashashin. Some believe that members of the order smoked the psychoactive resin before venturing out to slay their enemies. Others believe that hashish was used by their leader for mind control. But that leader's legacy traces back over 1400 years to the era of Prophet Muhammad. Muhammad is considered the founder of Islam. He began his ministry around the year 610, when the archangel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he would be Allah's messenger. And for approximately 20 years, Muhammad spread that message throughout Arabia, through both peaceful and violent means. But in 632, Muhammad died without naming a successor. Looking for direction, Muslims turned to Abu Bakr, Muhammad's father-in-law, He'd been chosen by the Prophet to lead daily prayers when Muhammad was ill. To many, this was a sign that Abu Bakr should be the new leader, and soon he was elected Caliph. Caliph more or less means deputy to the Prophet. It's important to understand that no one could ever replace Muhammad as the Prophet. In Islam, he's considered the final Prophet, sent by Allah after Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus but it's the caliph's job to lead the faith in his stead. And in Islam, there's no real separation of church and state. Religion and politics are one. Therefore, a caliph wasn't just a religious leader. He was also the governing ruler of a body of people, who were known as a caliphate. 
But in 632, not everyone agreed with the choice of Abu Bakr as caliph. A faction of Muslims believed that Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, Ali, was the rightful successor. Their central argument was that Ali shared Muhammad's blood, while Abu Bakr did not. The disagreement caused a rift amongst the once unified group. Followers of Abu Bakr became known as Sunnis. Those who chose Ali became known as Shiites. After two decades of infighting and the beheading of Muhammad's grandson, the Shiites and the Sunnis formally split. A line was drawn in the sand, and Islam was never the same. But the Shiites had fewer numbers and thus less power. For 200 years, they lived under Sunni control, and in that time, more splits occurred within their group, making it difficult to unify. One of those factions was the Ismaili Shiites. But everything changed in 909, when an Ismaili Shiite leader named Abu Abdullah claimed he was the descendant of Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. Thus, he was the true leader of the Muslims. As we mentioned, the Shiites had a particular interest in bloodlines. The Fatimid Caliphate rose to power and built an army. They expanded through North Africa and Palestine and eventually made Cairo their capital. For more than a century, no Sunni group dared take on the formidable Fatimid army until a group of Sunni Turks, known as the Seljuks, banded together and posed a serious threat. And it was during this period of political turbulence that Hassani Sabah created the Order of Assassins. Hassani Sabah was born into one of the major branches of Shiism, called Twelver Shiism, near present-day Tehran. Though an exact date isn't known, it was sometime between 1040 and 1055 CE. At the time, Persia was under Sunni Seljuk control. And as a devout Shiite, Hassan was raised to hate them. When he was about 17 years old, Hassan was introduced to a form of Shiite Muslim teachings known as Ismaili Shiism or Ismailism through a low-ranking Dai. Dai were essentially scholarly representatives of the faith who educated and invited others to convert. By 1072, Hassan had converted to Ismailism and swore a loyalty oath to the Fatimid Caliphate and their heir, Nizar, Nizar and Hassan grew close, becoming friends. Six years later, he traveled to Cairo, where he completed his religious studies and became a Dai himself. Now, it was Hassan's job to spread Ismailism throughout the world. His mission was to create a singular nation under its message. And Hassan was more than up to the near-impossible task. But he had hesitations about his leaders. His time in Cairo gave him insight on the growing weakness of the Fatimid Caliphate. They weren't doing enough to expand their power. Their opponents, the Seljuks, had slowly taken control in Persia and Syria. He expected more resistance from the Fatimids. So Hassan decided to take action into his own hands. Around 1081, Hassan left Cairo and headed east to preach Ismailism throughout the land. And he had tremendous success. The Seljuk conquest of Persia and Syria had left all Shiites, not just Ismailis, disenfranchised. As Hassan traveled through the land, many of the downtrodden clung to him as the revolutionary leader they needed to end Sunni oppression. He collected a devoted following of men who were tired of sitting on the sidelines. 
it was time to bring the fight to the Seljuks. It was time for an insurrection. Hassan just needed a base of operations, somewhere he could conduct his war on the Seljuks, and by 1088, he'd picked one out, Alamut Castle. Located 6,000 feet above sea level in the Alborz Mountains in northern Iran, Alamut Castle was a nearly impenetrable fortress. There was only one very difficult way in, through a narrow gorge along the Alamut River. No army could gain entrance by any ordinary means. It was the perfect base. But there was one big problem. It belonged to their enemies, the Seljuks. Trying to besiege it with a traditional attack would be suicidal. Hassan may have had a loyal following, but his numbers were nothing compared to the Seljuks. So he took a different approach, slow and steady. For almost two years, Hassan ordered his followers to convert locals in nearby villages. Once he amassed enough of a following, he sent a few to infiltrate Alamut, posing as Sunni believers. Once inside, they started to convert the Seljuks. Finally, in September 1090, Hassan Isabah was smuggled into Alamut Castle. There was no need to seize control because he was essentially already in control. He had the numbers. The Seljuk commander, after seeing that his men were no longer loyal, apparently just left, quietly. Some sources say that Hassan even paid the Seljuk commander 3,000 gold dinars for his troubles. Ironically, many historians consider this peaceful takeover to be the official beginning of the Order of Assassins. There was no secret meeting, no blood oaths sworn. They just quietly usurped a castle in the Iranian mountains. But the order quickly expanded their reach, spreading the word of Ismailism, converting more recruits, and acquiring more castles. After two years of missionary work, Hassan's order started to threaten the Seljuk Sultan, Malik Shah. There was a growing insurrection in his empire, so the Sultan ordered his political advisor, Nizam al-Mulk, to attack. Nizam was more than happy to do so. Interestingly, according to legend, Hassan and Nizam might have once been friends. They allegedly met while studying in Cairo. But after a bitter falling out, the two became enemies, and both men wanted the other dead. In 1092, Nizam and the Seljuks attacked Alamut and another assassin fortress called Kehistan. The hope was to exterminate the order in one fell swoop, before anything got out of hand. Unfortunately for the Seljuks, the Order of Assassins repelled the attack, despite being outnumbered, owing largely to the strength of their fortresses. But Hassan worried the assassins couldn't hold off another Seljuk assault. He didn't want to take the chance. He had to go on the offensive. Not long after the first wave of attacks on Alamut, Nizam al-Mulk was on the road from Isfahan to Baghdad. He was approached by a member of the Order of Assassins named Butahir Arani. Arani was disguised as a Sufi man, and when the time was right, he plunged a dagger into Nizam's body, killing him on the spot. The death of Nizam al-Mulk is widely regarded as one of the first, if not the first, official assassinations by the Order, and it changed everything. A few weeks later, the leader of the Seljuks, Sultan Malik Shah, died under unknown circumstances. The pair of deaths threw the Seljuk Turk Empire into civil war. 
It was a turning point and a lesson for the order. A precisely placed dagger could be just as effective as an all-out war. Then, two years later, Hassan's friend and heir to the Fatimid Caliphate, Nizar, was murdered in a plot orchestrated by an imperial advisor, Al-Afdal. Nizar was the last thing tying Hassan to a branch of Islam that he believed wasn't doing enough. So Hassan began his own sect, naming it after his deceased friend, Nizar Ismailism. With this, Hassan and the Order of Assassins severed ties with the Fatimid Caliphate. They became their own state, free to spread their message as he pleased, one assassination at a time, he would paint the sand red. Coming up, the secrets and mysteries of the Order of Assassins. Now back to the story. In 1095, the Order of Assassins officially broke ties with the failing Fatimid Caliphate. Now revolutionary leader Hassani Sabah was able to conduct his holy war against the Sunni Seljuks and any other faction that stood in his way. This holy war was centuries in the making. Tensions dated as far back as the Sunni-Shiite split in the mid-600s. The assassins were an Ismaili Shia group, and their central mission, called Dawah, was to spread Ismailism and create an Ismaili kingdom. As we mentioned, many branches of Islam, including Sunnism, followed a caliph. But in Ismaili tradition, they followed an imam. Imams exist in every form of Islam. They're typically considered prayer leaders. But in Shiism, they are much more due to the concept of talim. In a nutshell, talim is the idea that imams are the direct representatives of Allah and Muhammad on earth. They're the true successors of the Prophet Muhammad, chosen by Allah, and thus divine. In the order of assassins, Hassani Sabah was their imam. And while most of Hassan's writings are lost to history, we know for certain that he heavily reinforced the Shia concept of talim. So Hassan became something of a mystical figure, the person who could bring salvation and lead his people to paradise. And the imam's mission, or dawah, was to convert more souls along the way. So when he rose to power, it was time to expand his reach beyond Persia. Hassan knew the task before him wasn't going to be easy. He lacked numbers or a standing army. In Persia, the Shiite population still paled in comparison to the Sunnis, Seljuk, or otherwise, largely because Hassan's branch of Islam was seen as particularly radical. But Hassan had already proven that numbers weren't everything. He doubled down on strategy, especially the art of assassination. To be clear, even though the word assassin comes from the order, the act of targeted precision killing wasn't invented by Hassani Sabah. Historian Kai Mihil and archaeologist Harald Meller believe that the first political assassination happened in the Bronze Age, thousands of years before the order was ever even formed. In fact, in the Middle East, three Islamic caliphs were assassinated before Hassan ever took political power. But for Hassani Sabah, assassination was the ultimate tool against his foes. It denied his enemies something they wanted, glory. For the Seljuk leaders, dying in battle was honorable. Dying in your sleep at the hands of a single man wasn't. 
And of course, assassination was effective. Historian James Wasserman notes, since Islamic culture placed a high premium on individual excellence, the leader who was able to rise up and survive his acquisition of power was a tested individual. Thus, his death was often sufficient enough to alter substantially the balance of power. Political murder also had the added benefit of paranoia. In a world rife with assassinations, your enemy is always on edge. Death can strike at any moment. A walk in the streets, dinner with family, preparing for bed. It was psychological warfare as much as physical warfare. But Hassan never carried out these assassinations himself. In fact, legend has it that once he took control of the Alamut castle in September 1090, he never left. He never needed to. He could eliminate his enemies from the comfort of his chambers. And he could implicitly trust his followers to do his bidding. He'd turn them into elite killing machines by instilling total loyalty. The men who joined the Order of Assassins were volunteers. They were never pressed into service. They were called Fidai, which literally means devotee. They joined for a variety of reasons. For some, it was protection. The Order offered safety from the Seljuks and other threats. But for others, joining the Order was more spiritual. They were looking for a way into paradise. In Islam, paradise, or Jannah, is the afterlife reward for leading a God-fearing and pious life on Earth. And by the 1000s, the concept of paradise was a powerful motivator. For the assassins, Hassani Sabah was the gatekeeper to paradise, and he was promising entrance sooner rather than later, so long as they gave their lives to his cause. Martyrdom wasn't a new concept for Shia Muslims, but rarely had it been weaponized. When an assassin was given a mission, they never intended to return. It was no mistake that they were only given daggers for their murders. It required that they get within inches of their target. Given that most of their targets were heavily guarded, escape was almost impossible, and death was certain. But for members of the order, the fidai, the act of killing and then being killed, became a sought-after religious experience. Assassin historian Bernard Lewis writes, For the Ismailis, the assassins were the corps d'elite in the war against the enemies of the imam. By striking down oppressors and usurpers, they gave the ultimate proof of their faith and loyalty, and earned immediate and eternal bliss. There's a famous story of a mother who wept with joy when she heard that her son had carried out a successful assassination. She assumed that he died in the process and had gone to paradise. When her son returned home alive and healthy, she wept in shame, which goes to show the all-encompassing power of faith. And achieving that sort of conviction took training. According to Beauchart of Strasbourg, who visited Syria in 1175, assassin indoctrination started young and involved heavy isolation. You learned a variety of languages like Latin and Greek and other techniques to blend in. But the most important aspect of your education was to learn obedience to your master. Only when unquestionable devotion was achieved were you ready. And when that time came, you were called before the Grand Master Hassan himself and took part in a ceremony you would never forget. It begins with Hassan i Sabah standing before you in the Grand Master's chamber. He's the founder of your order, 
the rightful messenger to Allah. For some time now, he's promised you paradise, and today marks the beginning of your passage there. He hands you a cup and instructs you to take a sip. You don't ask what's inside. You prove your obedience. You ignore the bitter taste as it passes your lips and enters your body. Then, suddenly, you fall asleep. When you wake up, you're no longer in the Grandmaster's chamber. You're in a lush, green garden. It's filled with trees and bushes. There's a river trickling nearby. Birds and insects hover, making music all around you. The Garden of Paradise. And it's exactly as the Prophet Muhammad described. Soon, beautiful maidens appear, carrying a bounty of fruits, milk, and honey. For hours they feed you, treat you like a king. They tell you this is your reward for being faithful to the Grand Master and Allah. This is what awaits you if you die for Hassan. But your time in paradise can't last forever. Not yet. One of the maidens hands you a cup. She orders you to drink, and you do. The next time you wake up, you're back at Alamut, in the Grand Master's chamber again. He instructs you to describe what you just saw, and you do, with enthusiasm. When you finish, the Grand Master steps forward and asks you a question. If he promises to give you paradise again, will you obey his command? You fall to your knees and proclaim, Yes, I will. And you mean it like you never have before. Then the Grand Master bids you rise before him. You are now an assassin. He places a golden dagger in your hand and gives you a name. It's time to kill. Coming up, the assassins face retaliation and expand their order into Syria. Now back to the story. In 1095, the Order of the Assassins separated from the Fatimid Caliphate and created their own Islamic state based in Castle Alamut in modern-day Iran. Because the order's leader, Hassani Sabah, didn't have the numbers to conquer his enemies in war, he relied on his followers' unwavering devotion. He learned that one fearless assassin could be just as effective as an army of a thousand men. And he was said to create that loyalty through a drug-induced ceremony known as the Garden of Paradise. Though the Garden of Paradise ceremony is one of the most famous assassin legends, historians question the truth behind it. Many of the records we have on the order come from Europeans who visited the Holy Land, and they were likely heavily embellished and influenced by local rumors. As assassin historian Farhad Daftari notes, in all likelihood, we'll never know the exact training process of the order. It was one of the most heavily guarded secrets they had. Rumors that Hassan used deception and drugs like hashish within the walls of Alamut started circulating through Persia almost immediately following the creation of the order, which may point to some inherent truth. But we can't discount the likelihood that those rumors were started by the Seljuks or other Sunnis as a form of anti-Ismaili propaganda. Other scholars believe that the Garden of Paradise legend is wrongfully attributed to Hassan, that it was more likely created by a leader of the Syrian order of assassins, Rashid al-Din Sinan, years later. 
For now, what's important is how these popular misconceptions might have been born. After Christian crusaders arrived in Persia and Syria, they encountered the Order of the Assassins. They were fascinated by the allegiance the men had to their leaders. That fascination sparked lore that may or may not have been based on real events. By the time the stories reached Europe, it was like a game of telephone. They were likely far from true. Interestingly, one of the men responsible for some of these rumors was Marco Polo, the famous Italian explorer. He may have even spun the tale that the Garden of Paradise legend dates back to Hassani Sabah. But Marco Polo was born 130 years after Hassan's death. The only time he ever interacted with the Order of Assassins was during their downfall. So even the most popular theories about the Order, like their use of hashish, have to be questioned. While they may have smoked the psychedelic resin recreationally, there's no evidence that Hassan administered it to his followers during training, or that he used it as some sort of mind control for their missions. Historian James Watterson points out that the assassins needed to be intelligent, adaptable, and resourceful men, and being under the influence would have likely jeopardized their missions. Historian Farhad Daftari emphasizes that the assassins under Hassan were sober, Sacrificing their lives was purely a matter of conviction, which is understandably a difficult concept to wrap your head around. It takes a lot of conditioning, belief, and resolve to achieve that state of mind. Such behavior was foreign to the Europeans. So it's no surprise that people searched for alternative explanations for how Hassan achieved what he did, and his achievements were impressive. In 1096, the assassins took control of a second fortress, Gierd Ku Castle, located near present-day Damgan, Iran. According to historian James Wasserman, the castle was taken in a similar fashion as Alamut, bloodlessly and through espionage. As the story goes, a member of the order infiltrated the castle posing as a Seljuk. Eventually, he convinced the Sultan to name him commander. As commander, he fortified the castle and the Seljuks funded it. Then he declared he was a follower of Hassani Sabah. He welcomed the order inside, and they took control. But while Gierd Ku Castle fell easily, other areas of Persia resisted the assassins. They met their first major obstacle when they tried to take root in the city of Isfahan. Locals surrounding the stronghold weren't interested in what the assassins were preaching. When members of the order arrived and began using their usual tactics of infiltration and conversion, the citizens banded together and slaughtered them. But Hassan maintained his patience. He sent a high-ranking officer, Adai, named Atash, in disguise as a local schoolteacher. He believed Atash would be more discerning and discreet. And he was right. Atash converted enough men to the assassin sect of Islam. Nizari Ismailism, that the city would be taken without a single death. Assassin control of Isfahan was a major blow to the Seljuks. They were in the midst of a civil war, a civil war that the assassins would use in their favor. If you recall, one of the first assassinations at the hands of the order was the political advisor Nizam al-Mulk. Not long after, the Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah died. Tension only increased when Malik Shah's sons, Barkia Rok and Muhammad Tapar, each vied for power. Though Barkia Rok was officially named Sultan, his half-brother Muhammad led open revolts. 
Allegedly, during the Civil War, Bakia Roque actually employed the assassins. They were, for all intents and purposes, his enemies. But he needed to remove his half-brother's lieutenants. In fact, at least half of the assassinations ordered by Hassani Sabah were against Seljuk Turks, whose deaths benefited Sultan Barki Arok. Eventually, around 1100 or 1101, Barki Arok managed to stop Muhammad's insurrection by bribing him with land. And once he no longer had a need for assassinations, Barki Arok turned his attention to crushing the order. Sultan Barki Arok may have been happy to use the assassins when they were convenient, but he'd grown tired of their presence in Isfahan and Kehistan. So, in 1104, he ordered his Seljuk forces to attack Ismailis throughout the region, resulting in a brutal massacre. In response, Hassan targeted Seljuk officers and military commanders throughout the region. His followers slipped into Seljuk fortresses and silently killed the men in charge, leaving their soldiers leaderless. But Hassan needed to stop their message from spreading as well. The Seljuk Sunni spiritual leaders were speaking out against Ismailism. So he sent his fidai to kill Sunni preachers anywhere they could. Even in mosques. This was a profane transgression of their faith, something that even his enemies wouldn't expect. And it worked. Although he had superior numbers, Sultan Barki Arok called for a truce with the order. The details of their agreement are unclear. But according to historian James Wasserman, the terms were beneficial to Hassan and his men. This is why Sultan Barki Arok was heavily criticized for the deal. His people saw it as weakness. So the Sultan broke the truce, sent his armies out, and slaughtered Ismailis throughout Isfahan and modern-day Iraq. It was a show of strength, but it never stopped. In 1105, Barki Arok died of unknown causes. His half-brother, Muhammad, was finally named Sultan. He continued to fight the Order of Assassins, who had killed so many of his men. Small-scale attacks and assassinations raged on for years, until 1110. Then Seljuk forces laid siege to Alamut Castle. For eight years under Muhammad, the Seljuks tightened their stranglehold on Hassan and assassin leaders. Surrounded, the order nearly starved to death. But they managed to hold on long enough for Muhammad Tapar to die. Cornered and weak, Hassan saw Muhammad's death as an opportunity. For the moment, peace was his only chance for survival, to rebuild. And just like that, the siege was inexplicably called off. The order of assassins retreated. According to historian James Wasserman, Hassan later sent ambassadors to the new sultan, a man named Sanjar, to negotiate a ceasefire. Sanjar promptly dismissed the messengers, refusing to listen to any offer. This happened again and again. Hassan would dispatch his ambassadors to Sanjar's court, and each time they were turned away. So Hassan decided to get creative. One morning when Sanjar woke up, he found an assassin's dagger planted in the ground next to his bed. Not long after, Hassan sent one last ambassador to the court. This time, Sanjar allowed the assassin to speak. He delivered these words from Hassan. Did I not wish the Sultan well? That dagger which was struck in the hard ground would have been planted in his soft breast. The message was received loud and clear. 
the war was ended. Despite occasional skirmishes between the Seljuks and Persians, for the most part, there was peace. In fact, Sultan Sanjar even called upon the Order of Assassins when a coup was brewing in his empire. In the years after peace was declared, there aren't many records of assassinations by the Order. The assassins were likely focused on re-establishing their political and religious control among local communities. Except, there was one murder that had been a long time coming. Some unfinished business for the aging Hassan. In 1121, two assassins traveled from Aleppo to Cairo. They snuck into the palace of the Fatimid Caliph, seeking the Caliph's political advisor, Al-Afdal, the same man who'd helped orchestrate the murder of Hassan's friend, Nizar. This murder was the reason Hassan had separated and created his own state, and the namesake for the assassin's branch of Islam, Nizar Ismailism. Now, Hassan was finally going to get his revenge. 25 years after Nizar's death, two of Hassan's fidais plunged their daggers into Al-Afdal, spilling his blood across the palace floor. It was one of the last major assassinations under Hassan's rule. In May 1124, Hassan Sabah was struck with a fatal illness. As he weakened, he named his most trusted general, Buzorg Umid, as his successor, and Umid promised to continue spreading Nizari Ismailism across the world. It wasn't going to be easy to fill Hassan's shoes. For years, the leader of the assassins had inspired a legendary devotion amongst his men and he juggled attacks and strategies on countless fronts in the ongoing holy wars, all allegedly from inside the Alamut. The survival of the Order of Assassins wasn't guaranteed. They had enemies everywhere, the Seljuk Turks and the Fatimid Caliphate. In the midst of this uncertainty, Hassani Sabah died on May 23, 1124. He was almost 80, and he passed peacefully inside the castle he hadn't left in 35 years. During his reign as leader of the Order of Assassins, he perfected a new style of warfare, a war in the shadows. According to James Watterson, the Order carried out roughly 50 assassinations on Hassan's command. But in the years that followed, new leaders stepped into his shoes, Many of them were even more radical. They drove the Order of Assassins further into isolation and left a trail of blood in their wake. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with part two of the Order of Assassins. We'll explore how the Persian assassins struggled in the wake of their leader's death and how the Syrian assassins continued the holy war against the Sunnis and later the Christians. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.